0: So, I mentioned last week that we were going to be talking about Scripture's view of women. And remember that the reason we are coming to this first is because next week we're actually going to talk about the roles. And I felt like it would be very valuable to talk about the way God views women, the way he interacts with the way Jesus interacted with women through the Bible to give us a bit of a foundation so that when we get to some of these practical things, we understand the heart of God and we don't feel um, as as perhaps frustrated against them because I think a lot of times we say things in our Christian circles, but the world has twisted and morphed things in such a way that we have a wrong understanding about some of these things. So anyways, that's what we're going to start with tonight. A common theme over the centuries has been the abuse, exploitation, and neglect for the care of women. It has been a worldwide epidemic that is no respecter of continental borders, cultural norms, or social and economic status. From domestic violence to traditional, harmful social practices and sexual exploitation, violence against women and girls occurs all over the world. So I thought what I would do is I'm going to present a few statistics, and I know statistics can get overwhelming, and you can't keep up with them. So I am not going to give you a whole bunch, but I still think that they're valuable just to help you track with what I'm talking about. So these really, I I think you probably know them, but they still reveal the sad truth of just our culture and and the cultures around the world as well. So it estimates, 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 uh, oh, es- I'm reading it wrong. Estimates published by the World Health Organization indicate that globally about 1 in 3 or 30% of women worldwide have been subjected to either physical and or sexual violence in their lifetime. If, so if I would have had you know plenty of time, I was going to hand out little things and then have like at least 10 of you stand up because I figure we probably have at least 30 ladies here. I don't know. I haven't counted. But to think about that, like this little group right here, if in, a, in a room with this many people, and this group right here would likely have all been sexually abused at some point. And I know that there are women in here that have faced that. These are very real statistics. So one out of every six American women has been the victim of an attempted or completed rape. And just to let you know that the attempts the percentage are much smaller, and the actual committed rapes, the percentage is much, much higher. But one in six women, that's very high. <clears throat> Again, in a, in a group this size, there was likely several women who have experienced that. Globally, as many as 38% of all murders of women are committed by intimate partners. Over 200 million women and girls in 30 countries have undergone female genital mutilation. 71% of all human trafficking involves women and girls, mainly for sexual exploitation. One in five female refugees have experienced sexual violence in countries affected by the conflict. These numbers are very high. It's a lot of women that have experienced abuse. These are heartbreaking statistics. And as I already said, in a group this big, it is inevitable that some of you have experienced abuse at the hands of men. This is a tragic wickedness and does not in any way reflect the heart of God and his love for women. And I don't have time to go into this right now. But if you are one of these women that have struggled with this, seek some counsel to help you work through it. Because a common theme is why would a good God allow that to happen to me? And that's a, that's a question that needs to be answered. If you have that question, women shouldn't be treated in these ways. It is sinful. It is grievous. It is abhorrent. In an effort to put a stop to the abuse of women, various organizations have been created. Some that are good and others that unfortunately subject women to other forms of harm. The feminist movement has been particularly harmful to women, although this has not been its intent. I don't think that the feminists intended to create the mess that they have created. I think some of the, now some of the responses are just plain evil, but some of them, I really do think women were trying to help other women who had experienced abuse and different things like that. Sadly, because those who are influential in the movement have neglected to consult the scripture, they have drawn incorrect conclusions about what is harmful to women and what the solution is in helping them. So to help you understand what I'm referring to when I even say that, I've included some additional statistics. So the following list was included with other statistics I already read to you. So those the, the first list that I read to you, as I kept scrolling, and I I had those from a few different lists, but one list that I included some of those had this other long list underneath it, and so I'm going to read the additional part of that list, just some of the things. We don't need to read all of them, but I think you're going to grasp what I'm trying to say here. These numbers were presented as being harmful to women as well, claiming that women are abused and mistreated in places where these facts are present. So basically they're saying if this, is, if this number is true, then this means women are being abused in this way. So listen as I read them and ask yourself, are these things actually harmful to women? Around 650 million women across the globe were married before the age of 18. Okay, so if we look back into scripture, we know that lots of people got married young. But this would be what the world would say would probably be some form of abuse. Women make up just 25% of parliamentarians worldwide. In January 2019, one in five government ministers around the world were women. So obviously this isn't abuse, but it is... um, supposed to be a reflection of how women are mistreated so women spend this is interesting women spend at least twice as much time as men on domestic work and when all work paid and unpaid is considered women work longer hours than men that is abuse (laughs) okay but you understand what i'm saying though like this is what the world is presenting here so, less than 15% of landowners worldwide are women, despite most women in the global south working in agriculture. So, that's all I'm going to give you. We could go on. There was many more things there, but you get the idea. If we are not informed by scripture, then where do we draw the line between, be, between what is actually abuse And what is the world's way of saying women are abused and they're downtrodden, um, that type of thing? We need to know, and the only place we're going to know that is through Scripture. There are two things I want to bring to your attention. So first, women are mistreated and taken advantage of and abused. That's a fact. We know that that is true. This is sinful and wicked, and it does not please God. He did not create women to be abused and mistreated. Men should protect and care for women. But in our sinful fallen world, all that should be is not. And that's why we experience things like that. So then the second thing, and sorry, this isn't on your outline. The second thing is that the world is not always capable of determining what is actually abuse or mistreatment as our statistics revealed to us. They can recognize sometimes what is wrong, But because their solutions aren't biblical, they come to wrong conclusions. In this case, they add things to the list of abuse and mistreatment that aren't actually harmful or abusive. So they're saying, to just use that one little statistic, they're saying that women do more domestic work. And that is a bad thing. But if we are well informed by scripture, who's supposed to do the bulk of the domestic work? We are. We are privileged to be able to do that. But if we have a worldly mindset, then we're going to be frustrated with our husbands if they aren't carrying equal load of what we are carrying. As believers, we need to study the Word of God to determine what is right and what is wrong. And then we must learn how to live biblically according to it. Male chauvinism and dominance are sinful. Sadly, these things are not only practiced in the unbelieving world, they are sometimes practiced within Christian, quotes here, loosely Christian circles. For example, the patriarchal movement that was very popular a decade or two ago was not biblical, and as a result, it was harmful to women. God hates sinful abuse brought against women by wicked men. You're getting the theme here. I keep saying that over and over again. But the world does not present the proper and appropriate solution. Getting married later in life, working in the government, owning land will not fix the abuse and mistreatment that women experience. Only as men and women submit to the authority of Scripture to pursue and prioritize God's purpose for their creation and existence will we solve our dilemma. And I realize I am not telling you anything that you don't already know. So this is, this is great that probably most of us are on the same page. But it's still, I think, important that we be reminded of these things. So as the statistics reveal, there are many women who experience abuse at the hands of sinful men, but the feminist position to stand up to men and demand equal rights is not the solution. As Christian women who desire to please God in our marriages, we must be careful not to, to adopt a worldly feminist mindset. Unfortunately, we don't always recognize the ways in which we have embraced worldly thinking, especially when we have been influ- in, excuse me, influenced from a very young age. So our culture begins influencing little girls to think unbiblically about their gender and role from the time they are very young. There are many slogans that are designed to promote the feminist agenda. And I remember when my girls were little, like you would see t-shirts with various different slogans. And I assume they're probably still out there. I don't know. I haven't shopped for little girls' clothes in a while. But some of these things, just to give you a sampling, girls rule. Oh, that's fun. What's wrong with that? Flower power. Women are mighty. Or girl power. So we see these things, perhaps, but do we understand where they're coming from? Okay. So what I'm going to read from you next is maybe not the most reliable source. It's from Wikipedia. But <laughs> um, here's the thing. The reason why I'm going to be so bold as to read it to you is because it actually mirrors my own observations of what I was watching and seeing when my girls were little. And so I don't think that we're way off here. So he says this. Girl power is a slogan that encourages and celebrates women's empowerment, independence, confidence, and strength. The slogan's invention is credited to the U.S. punk band Bikini Kill from 1991. It was then popularized in the mainstream by the British girl group who? Spice Girls. That's right. See, I told you. We know this. According to the Rolling Stone magazine, the Spice Girls' usage of girl power was one of the defining cultural touchstones that shaped the millennial generation. How many of you fit into that category? Millennials. It, it did. I mean, I remember all these things and the promotion of them and the t-shirts and all that kind of stuff and Spice Girls, all these little girls so so excited about them. But it was all part of, obviously, lots of other wrong, sinful things as well, but it's part of that feminist movement of girls rule. Girls are powerful. Sadly, many biblical, excuse me, sadly, biblical womanhood that promotes the scriptural teaching of submission, respect, and the role of helper in marriage has been labeled as abuse. As a result, many women struggle to accept the role that God has laid out in his word. To make matters even more complex and confusing, there are those within the larger Christian, okay, quotes again, culture, who have tried to make the biblical role of women more acceptable to a worldly feminist audience. As a result, two, again, Christian in quotes, positions on women's role in the church and marriage have emerged. And I'm going to explain those two different positions because I think that they're, they, they will be helpful. Um, to for you guys to think through them and I'm actually going to be reading um, I brought some books just because it's helpful for you to know where I got some of my information but I'm going to be reading from this book equal yet different by Alexander Strock. so that's what I'm going to read from right now another one that I used was Kevin DeYoung men and women in the church this is a great book Um, So if you're looking for some books that aren't like super, super long on the topic, those are really easy to read. And then this one actually was helpful as well, 12 Extraordinary Women by John MacArthur. Um, And he goes in and uh, actually talks about, I think, 11 different women in the Bible. Very helpful and interesting. Anyways, so uh, Alexander Strauss says this, Bible-believing Christians generally hold one of two positions regarding the gender debate. One position is the complementary view, which is the non-feminist view. It is also called the traditional or hierarchical view. The other position is the evangelical feminist view or egalitarian view. It is also known as the biblical feminism, biblical egalitarian, or biblical equality. So notice that they're putting biblical before all of the words that they're using there. And the fact of the matter is, it's not biblical, and that's the sad thing. There is an assumption that if men and women are having differing, have differing biblical roles, then they are not equal in value. So different roles means you're not equal in value, basically. Thus, those who hold to a feminist or egalitarian position try to modify or even change the biblical teaching of a woman's role in an effort to bring what they deem as equality. Sadly, they have completely misinterpreted scripture, and it has been to the detriment of men and women in the church, in, in the home, and even in the family, and in the workforce in general. Like The wrong teaching that has gone out there has affected people all, in all different areas of life. So by way of brief introduction, like I already said, I'm going to go ahead and define these two different categories for you. Then what I'm going to do is specifically focus on the way women are portrayed in Scripture. So next week, like I said, we're going to focus on the roles, but this week I really do want you to see... How does God interact with women? How do, what is the teaching from Scripture regarding commands and things like that toward women? So first of all, let's look at the complementarian view, or traditional biblical, and that is at the top of your page. And I gave you a very brief definition so that you can very easily look back and remember what it is, but I'm going to read a, a little bit more explanation for you. The complementary view teaches that God created men and women as equals with different gender-defined roles. Scholars chose the term complementarian in order to emphasize both the equality of the sexes and the complementary differences between men and women. So you can in this view you can have differing roles and still well differing roles and still be equal. In the next one, they say if your roles are different, then that means you aren't, there isn't equality there. According to this, uh, did I already read that part of it? According to this viewpoint, God created men and women equally in his divine image. Men and women are fully equal in personhood, dignity, and worth. According to the complementarian viewpoint, it is equally true that God created men and women to be different and to fulfill distinct gender roles. God designed the man to be husband, father, provider, and protector. He is to be the head of the family and to lead the church family. God designed the woman to be the wife, the mother, the nurturer. She is to actively help and submit to men's leadership. To correctly represent the biblical teaching on gender, both truths, equality, and role differences need to be affirmed and held in a balanced tension. Adherents of the complementary view believe that it best represents the plane. This is really important. So I know I'm reading for a while here and so your brains can start to wander. So this is important though. So they say that um, this view believes that it best represents the plain, literal, straightforward teaching of the Bible on gender. There's not hidden meanings. We're just taking the straightforward reading of scripture here. Furthermore, role differences are clearly and repeatedly taught and practiced by Jesus Christ and his apostles. This view also represents the historic, this is important as well so that you know this isn't just something that they just now came to, this view represents the historic interpretation followed by churches and Christian teachers over the past 2,000 years. Although at time it has been, of course, imperfectly understood and implemented because we are all sinful. So that's complementarian. All right, now we're going to switch to the next one, egalitarian, or the evangelical feminist view. And I think that's what he calls it, he refers to it in his book. So evangelical feminists teach that God created men and women equally to bear the divine image. They conclude that true equality requires equal ministry opportunities for both sexes. They believe that the submission of women in marriage and womanly restrictions in Christian ministry are inconsistent with the true picture of biblical equality. So basically it's exactly opposite of the other view. They consider the equal yet different, excuse me, equal yet different doctrine taught by the complementarians to be a contradiction in terms. So they don't understand how the two things differing roles and yet still have equality. They don't understand how the two can go together. According to the evangelical feminist view, true biblical equality assures that both men and women are full and equal partners in life. Women and men are free to exercise in the church any and all gifts they possess. Men hold no unique leadership authority role solely because of their gender. Leadership and teaching in the church is to be determined by spiritual gift and ability, not gender. So if we at this church agreed with this, I could probably ask if I could start preaching. No, thank you, because I hold to the other view that's been held to for 2,000 years, and it's the biblical teaching of what Jesus taught even when he was here. It's what scripture teaches. But you understand what's going on there. A woman who is gifted by God to teach and lead the church deserves to have equal opportunity to exercise her giftedness. Adherence to this viewpoint consider the Bible's statements on headship and submission to have been grossly misinterpreted by past generations of Christians. So they're looking at the other view and they're saying, 2,000 years, well, that's because they have misunderstood and misinterpreted the true meaning of Scripture. They believe that the simplistic, literal, and traditional interpretations of Scripture misrepresent the Bible's teaching on gender equality. As a result, women have been discriminated against and their gifts and services have been wasted. That's their conclusion. So I realize this is a lot of reading and very long explanations for these things, but they really are very important. And the position that the church takes on these things is very important because it's, it affects how we think. It affects how we as women are going to interact in our homes, with our husbands, with our childrens, and in the church. And so we have to understand these things. So especially next week when we talk about roles, we understand that God has designed roles intentionally on purpose, but when they come together, there is nobody that's better than the other person. They are equal together, but different, and both are necessary to the proper function of the marriage of the home, of the family, and of the church. So that's why I'm going into this very long explanation. So moving forward over the next few lessons in which we discuss the topics of women's roles in marriage, submission, love and respect, etc., I will be teaching from the view of complementarian, just so that you know that you have a heads up. However, before we approach these topics, I would like to show you that even though God created differing roles for men and women, his creation of women is not lesser or of lesser value or of lesser importance. So I'm actually going to read um, some of what was in that other book that I showed you by John MacArthur. And he kind of summed up some things and I thought, you know, he just says everything way better than I can say it. So I am going to read it to you again. And I just thought it was very beautiful the way he explained it. So he says this, "...one of the unique features of the Bible is the way it exalts women. Far from ever demeaning or belittling women, Scripture often seems to go out of the way to pay homage to them." to ennoble their roles in society and family, to acknowledge the importance of their influence, and to exalt the virtues of women who are particularly good examples. Women play prominent roles in many key biblical narratives. We know that to be true, right? Just, I mean, there's a couple books of the Bible that are named after them, Ruth, Ruth and Esther. Women play prominent roles in key biblical narratives, Wives are seen as venerated partners and cherished companions to their husbands, not merely slaves or pieces of household furniture. At Sinai, God commanded children to honor both father and mother, not just the fathers. That was a revolutionary concept in an era when most pagan cultures were dominated by men who ruled their households with an iron fist While women were usually regarded as lesser creatures, mere servants to men. In Proverbs, wisdom is personified as a woman. The New Testament church is likewise represented as a woman. All of that stands in sharp contrast to the way other ancient cultures routinely degraded and debased women. Women in pagan societies during the biblical times were often treated with little more dignity than animals. Some of the best-known Greek philosophers taught that women are inferior creatures by nature. Even in the Roman Empire, perhaps the very pinnacle of pre-Christian civilization, women were usually regarded as mere chattel. Personal possessions of their husbands or fathers, with hardly any better standing than household slaves. And if you read anything about that, you know that men could divorce their wives at any time, any any way they wanted to. It didn't matter. Women truly were viewed as useless. They gave them errors, like they just did not have any real regard for women. Christianity, born in a world where Roman and Hebrew cultures intersected, elevated the status of women to an unprecedented light. Christian women women converted out of pagan societies were automatically freed from a host of demeaning practices, emancipated from the public debauchery of temples and theaters where women were systematically dishonored and devalued, They rose to prominence in home and church where they were honored and admired for feminine virtues like hospitality, ministry to the sick, the care and nurture of their own families, and loving labor of their hands. So this has always been the trend. Wherever the gospel has spread, the social, legal, and spiritual status of women as a rule has been elevated. When the gospel has been eclipsed, whether by repression, false religion, secularism, humanistic philosophy, or spiritual decay within the church, the status of women has declined accordingly. So that's important for us to understand that because when we come to scripture and we are instructed to submit to our husbands, and you guys know you just memorized that verse over the last couple of weeks, right? To submit to your husband's. So when we come to that teaching, if we have a wrong view on God and how he views women, then we are going to resent his word when he tells us to submit to our husbands or when he says, you're the helper, when we might really want to be the leader. Or when perhaps our husbands by nature are not natural leaders and we maybe are natural leaders and we have to figure out how to submit under that, that can be very difficult. And so we need to understand that it is actually the teaching of scripture that has given women value and a place in the world to where people look and and appreciate the role and the duties of women. There was so much more I wished I could have included in here. Maybe we can talk about some of it as we go. <clears throat> a woman's role is essential to the proper function of marriage, family, and the church. So as we prepare to look at some of the individual lives of women in the Bible, there are a few things first that we need to keep in mind. So, wow, that took us a really long time to get on the outline. So that was a long Um, Beginning there. So, A is an overview, which I think there's no blanks there. And number one, God created men and women in his image. And all I'm going to do here and just go through these kind of quickly, but I just want you to see that there's no distinction in these things that we're going to look at between men and women. So, as I said, God created men and women in his image, it wasn't just man. And then women were kind of the leftovers. No, both men and women were created in God's image. So Genesis one twenty seven says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So men weren't given a special privilege above women to be image bearers of God. Both men and women are image bearers. So number two, Both men and women are born with sinful hearts. This is not anything new. You guys know this. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So one thing we need to understand is that all people are sinful. All men and all women are sinful. Men don't have a special acceptance before God from which women are excluded. Every person ever born needs a savior to redeem them from the wrath of God that they rightly deserve. So as we look through scripture, we see that God chose not only to save men, he also saved women and often used them in remarkable ways to bring about his sovereign plan in the world. So that's what we're going to look at as some of those things. But I do think it's important, again, to even just see like there's no distinction here in the gospel God views men and women equally. So number 3. No one is saved unless God draws them. So John 6:44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So that's Jesus saying that. So this is a beautiful verse because it evidences the love of God. When a person A man or a woman is saved. It is a work of God by his grace. So we all sit here tonight as believers because God is the one that called us to himself. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's no difference between men and women in salvation. So of course we couldn't leave out Ephesians. So I had to go there. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Men don't get to boast about their salvation. Women don't get to boast about theirs. We are all saved because of the grace of God at work in our lives. When we see God redeeming women in the Bible, it is a result of his love and kindness. Women don't come to Christ any differently than men. God in kindness chooses to save, and it is a beautiful demonstration of his love. Because God loves and values women, he saves them the same way that he saves men. So number four, God prepared good works for all his creation or not creation children so now just looking down a little further in ephesians there because i just read 2 8 9 now i'm going to read 210 for we are his workmanship created in christ jesus for good works which god prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them that is to all believers so men are called to do good works and what does he say that they were prepared beforehand. The good works that you will do for the kingdom of God, God prepared long ago beforehand for you. He did that for us as women in the same way he did it for men. God has used women to accomplish his purposes during the course of history. And this, of course, is evident throughout scripture. So number five, Scripture promotes the dignity and care of women. So A is modesty. So in 1 Peter 3:3 through 4, it says this your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious. In the sight of God. Now, here is the thing. So I don't know that we experience this quite to the degree that we maybe do in other places, especially here in our church, because we tend to be a little bit more sensitive to modesty and those kinds of things. But this can be a huge wrestle, especially if you've had teenage girls ever or anything like that. You know that can be very hard for them. Because how does how does the world dress? teenage girls very immodestly and especially if you live like in Southern California or maybe in Florida or things like that being modest is very very difficult and here's the thing a lot of times women or even little girls really kick against this teaching because they want to get as close to the world as they can and still be sort you know be Christian but Okay, so you heard all those other things that I was reading from what John MacArthur said about how Christianity brought this new appreciation for women. So remember, like in Ephesus, they had the temple to Artemis. Okay, so what happened in these temples? The women would go in and prostitute themselves there. It was all part of the religious ceremony going on. So when you when you had Christianity coming and saying, no, you don't have to do that. These women were freed from this awful slavery to sexual sin. And so this is one of the ways women were protected from that. So we look at it from our culture and we go, "Why <laughs> Modesty, just loosen up a little. But no, you don't understand. This is what God has laid out for our protection. When we take off our clothes, when we strip it down, when we wear very little clothing, what do men look at? They look at our bodies and they lust after them, especially unbelieving men. They have have nothing to stop those sinful fleshly lusts. And so God puts this in here not because he's trying to limit us and make our lives so miserable because now we can't be stylish. He does it because he loves us. Because he's, he values women and he wants to protect us. So we always need to be thinking through modesty from that angle rather than the angle of the, what the world is promoting. So then B... Husbands should protect their wives. So 1 Peter 3, 7. You husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Okay, again, you have to think about the culture that this was written in. So for men that viewed women as chattel and property. For scripture to come in and start teaching for the apostles to be teaching the men that they are to live with their wives in an understanding way, they wouldn't have known what to do with that. But it was the work of God, the teaching, because God, again, loves and protects women. And he was teaching men how to love and appreciate their wives. So see, husbands should love their wives. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So again, this teaching, because women were to be treated kindly with honor and respect and love from their husbands. So again, a protection. D., Widows, okay, so this is kind of a little different category here, but I've, I still felt like it was important because it still goes to show the care that God has for women. Because remember in that culture, if you were a woman that didn't have any resources, if you didn't have a son to take care of you, what in the world were you going to do? Who, how were you going to have anything to eat, places to live, anything like that? And so I'm not going to go into all of this. You can read that when you get home, but I'm reading from 1 Timothy 5, 8. But um, I am just going to read this one little verse here. But remember, I'm taking it out of the context of what the instruction is for widows. So verse 8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So here comes Christianity with this new presentation of how widows should be cared for. If you have a widow in your family, you are to take care of them so they are not destitute. The love of God for women is amazing. So we don't have time to continue. We could probably keep going with a lot of different things there, but we need to keep moving. But I did want you to see that because... Some of the things that we read in Scripture, we don't understand exactly the culture that it's come out of, and so why this was so impactful. And we should also be impacted by these things so, again, that we understand God loves us, and whatever he instructs us in Scripture is for our good, not for trying to stifle or um, dominate us by men in any way. So B., I'm just going to look at some examples of women used in scripture, four important tasks. That's your little outline there. So number one, women who God used to protect Moses. Okay, so what I'm just going to do is we're just going to look at different actual examples of women in the Bible. And I just thought this was so cool as I was thinking about this. Because you remember the story of Moses, and I'm not going to go into it and read the whole thing. But you remember how that uh, the Pharaoh was wanting to the midwives to kill all the baby, the little boy babies when they were born. And the midwives refused to do it because they feared God, so they were not going to do that. So then Jochebed, who was Moses' mother, when Moses was born... She decided, I'm not, I'm going to hide this baby. And so for three months she hid him and then she went and put him in the reeds and Miriam was there to watch. And then who did God send? The Pharaoh's daughter. Okay, so who was Moses? He was kind of an important person, was he not? He was the one that God used to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt. And who were all the people around him that were taking care of him so that that would happen? Women, all of them. So we have the midwives, Shifra and Puah, not sure if I'm pronouncing those exactly right. The mother, Jacobed, his sister Miriam, and then we have Pharaoh's daughter. God used all of these women to accomplish what he was seeking to accomplish so that Moses would be able to all those years later, how many years later? 80 years, remember? Eighty years later, he would be able to be used of God to deliver the children of Israel from the Egyptians. We think of Exodus as all about Moses, but before Moses bursts onto the scene, in order for, and actually in order for him to burst onto the scene, we are introduced to several women. The Hebrew midwives allow Moses to live because of their bravery and ingenuity, because this mother does the hard but right thing and preserves Moses by sending him down the river. Then Miriam serves her baby brother by watching over him while he floated among the reeds and scheming a way to bring Moses back for a time. And then Pharaoh's daughter raises Moses as her own son. All of these women. God didn't have to use women, did he? He could have used, he could have changed Pharaoh's heart. He could have done all kinds of things but he chose to use women. So then number two, God employed women to protect his servants. So I have all this scripture here, and I just, I'm not sure we have time to read all this. So I have on there, Elijah's widow. And I thought, after I'd printed this, I'm like, I'm not sure that was the best thing to call, Elijah's widow. Anyways, but you remember when uh, there was a famine in the land, And the brook had dried up, and so then he went, um, and God said, Well, go to, um, uh, where does it say he was supposed to go to? Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. And he says, I have commanded a widow to take care of you. And so he goes, and he asks her to bring some water, and then he says, And also bring me bread. And she says, well, I'm just about ready to go use up the last of my oil and flour, and then my son and I are going to die. And so Elijah says, well, no, go bring it to me instead. And if you do that, then your flour and your oil will never run dry. Okay, so think about the love of God here. Because this is just so, so amazing. God could have used anyone to spare Elijah But who did he choose? A widow who had no means to support herself. They were living in a famine. And God used this woman not only to provide for Elijah, but he used it to provide for her and her son. Is that not just so kind of God to do that? So then, of course... We have Rahab. We can't forget Rahab. Rahab was the first person with whom the Israelites had interaction in the land of Canaan. So remember, they've already been wandering in the desert all those years, and now they're going back, and the spies have gone back in to scope out Jericho and see what it's like. So she was a prostitute. She was deeply entrenched in an immoral life of debauchery and yet God opened her heart to him, giving her a heart to fear God. As a result, she hid the two spies when they came to scope out the city of Jericho. God used her as an instrument to accomplish his will, and then protected her as a result of her obedience. But this, again, is another kind and gracious, amazing account of God's love for women, because she, she was a prostitute in a very pagan, pagan culture of just wickedness. And God chose her and saved her. And where does she end up? In the genealogy of Jesus, right? Like God loved her. God loves women. Rahab, so this is, who is this? John MacArthur. So Rahab is a beautiful example of the transforming power of faith. Although she had few spiritual advantages and little knowledge of the truth, her heart was drawn to Yahweh. She risked her life, turned her back on a way of life that did not honor God and walked away from everything but her closest family members whom she brought into the community of God's people along, along with her. From that day on, she lived a completely different kind of life as a true hero of the faith. She has a place of honor in Hebrews 11 alongside some notable names and that great cloud of witnesses who testified to the saving power of faith. Apparently, she lived out her life in quiet dignity and grace amid the people of God. She was wholly changed from the kind of woman she had once been— She was and still is a living symbol of the transforming effect of saving faith. That is the primary message of her life. What a kind and gracious and loving God. And there's a lot of hope in this account as well. Because no matter how much sin we have participated in, God redeems even the worst of sinners. Paul calls himself the worst of sinners because God loves people and he doesn't love men more than he loves women. So women, number three, women ministered in the early church. So I will read these just really quickly here, these passages, because they're a little bit shorter. So Acts 18, 24 through 26. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla... This is about Priscilla in the church. And Aquila heard him. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. God uses women in the church to proclaim truth, to teach truth. Now, obviously, we aren't to be leading and preaching. That is not. That's why I teach only you guys. But God uses women within the church. So then we have Tabitha. So Acts 9, 36, through 40. I think I maybe skipped out trying to make it a little shorter there, a couple of verses. So now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died. When Peter arrived, they brought him into the upper room and all the win- the widows stood beside him weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she sat up. So there's just so many things going on there because this woman was serving in the church. And who was she particularly serving? Obviously the widows because they were the ones there. And so God was using her to have an effective ministry in the church to the widows. And then she dies. And what does God do? He brings her back to life. What a comfort for those widows who loved her so dearly. God didn't have to do that, but he's kind and he's gracious and he's loving. And then we have Lydia, and this is just fantastic, and I just can't get into any of it. But anyways, Lydia was the first convert recorded in Europe on Paul's original journey there. So John MacArthur said her conversion marked the earliest foothold of the church on the continent that ultimately became the hub of the gospel's witness worldwide, because Europe was the hub of Christianity for hundreds and hundreds of years. So Acts 16, 14, and 15. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So, Okay, I don't have time to get into all the history of this, but Paul and Silas were supposed to be going to Macedonia and God prevented... No, wait, did I say that right? They were going to Asia and God prevented them from going there. And so instead, here they go off to Europe. Lydia was from Asia and so she's doing business here. And so when the disciples come... She's there to hear the gospel that is presented and God uses that to save her and then gives her a very necessary uh, Position or whatever you want to call it to serve in the church She had the apostles staying with her taking care of them as they were there establishing the church God clearly uses women So we have to keep moving Number four, God used women to prepare men for service. So we have Lois and Eunice, Second Timothy 1.5, and then, well, I'll just read this verse first. So Paul is writing to Timothy, and he says this, for I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure it is in you as well. Why? Because Lois and Eunice were teaching him the true gospel. And they were, well, I think actually what happened with Timothy is that they were um, Jews, and so they had raised him in Judaism. And when Paul came through teaching the gospel, because Timothy had already been prepared by his mother and Eunice, God then opened his heart to understand the gospel. So then 2 Timothy 3.15 Um, Just continuing on with kind of this theme. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ. Who taught him those things from childhood? His mother and his grandmother. So I think most of you, not everybody in here, and probably eventually all of you, will be at one time or another a mother or a grandmother. Timothy became Paul's right-hand man, very necessary role that God gave him. And he was influenced by his mother and grandmother. We have a very significant job that God has given us to do. And then, of course, we have Hannah. And you guys remember the story. I'm not going to read that because we're getting short on time here. But you remember Hannah. That she could not, she was barren, she couldn't have children. And so she prayed, she went to the temple and she prayed. And God gave her Samuel. And she kept Samuel for those early years. And when he was weaned, she took him to the temple. And and offered him there to work with Eli. And presented him to Eli to work in the temple for the rest of his life. And Samuel became the high priest. So anyways, clearly God uses women to influence other people, and to accomplish God's work in the world. So last little thing here um, is on your outline C, a summary of Jesus' view of women. And I really wanted to make sure that I included this because I just think it's really important just for you guys to think through our Savior. And we know, of course, that God and Jesus and the Spirit are all part of the Trinity, but I think that there's something so precious about our Savior and how when he walked on this earth, the way that he treated and responded to women. So, number one, Jesus frequently ministered to the needs of women. Out of a culture background that minimized the dignity of women and even depersonalized them, Jesus boldly affirmed them and gladly benefited from their, from their vital ministry. He made the unusual practice of speaking freely to women. He also frequently ministered to the needs of hurting women, such as Peter's mother-in-law, the woman bent over for 18 years, the bleeding woman, and the Syrophoenician woman. And there's references there that I'm not going to take time to give to you, but still you get the idea of Jesus' compassion. Number two, Jesus allowed women to minister to him. And if you think about a king, there are only certain people who, ...that can minister to a king. Who is Jesus? He is the king of kings. Of course, that wasn't evident when he was here... ...but that is who he is. He didn't have to let women minister to him... ...but he values women... and ...so he allowed women to minister in the same way... ...that he allowed men to minister to him. Not only... Jesus not only ministered to women... ...he allowed women to minister to him... Women anointed Jesus, and He warmly received their service. Some women helped Jesus' ministry financially, while others offered hospitality. A number of women, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, Mary and Martha, are mentioned by name in the Gospels, indicating their important place in Jesus' ministry. Many women were among Jesus' band of disciples, and most significantly, women were the first witnesses to the resurrection. So the number three, Jesus' ministry demonstrated that women have enormous value and purpose. So underlying Jesus' ministry was the radical assumption that women have enormous value and purpose. The clearest example is his mother, Mary, who is called highly favored in Luke one twenty-eight. Moreover, Jesus used women as illustrations in his teaching, mentioning the queen of the south, the widow of Zarephath, women at the second coming, and the woman in search of her lost coin. And then number four, Jesus used women as positive examples when he was teaching. So he held up the persistent widow as an example of prayerfulness. You remember the the example of that. And the poor widow's offering as an example of generosity. He could have just used men, but he didn't because Jesus valued women. And then the last one, number five, Jesus honored, valued, respected, and protected women. Jesus addressed women tenderly as daughters of Abraham, placing them on the same spiritual plane as men. His teaching on divorce treated women as persons, not mere property, and his instruction about lust protected women from being treated as nothing more than objects of sexual desire. And in a time where female learning was suspect, Jesus made a point to teach women on numerous occasions. In short, Jesus honored women, valued them, respected them, gladly benefited from them, and included them in his ministry in meaningful ways. So, all of this is just the foundation for next week. But I hope that it has encouraged your heart and made you fall in love with your Savior, with your God just a little bit more to realize that He loves you, that He loves women, and He desires for us to be effective in the kingdom, in the church, in our homes, and in our family. So when we come to some of these things that traditionally we don't like, we should be able to understand them coming from a heart of a loving God, a loving Savior. Let's pray.